to the Roman church. And let me begin reading in verse 16. I'll read through verse 18 as we resume our study of the epistle of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I, I want to begin tonight by going back and uh, tying up a little loose end that I, I feel like I left last week. Uh, we looked at verses 16 and 17 last week, and um, uh, hopefully uh, you'll get a sense of the profundity of those, uh, those two simple little verses. Um, where Paul declares that he's not ashamed of the gospel and because in that gospel the righteousness of God is declared and he glories in that and then makes the emphasis that that righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith and then quotes that great um, Habakkuk passage the just shall live by faith and so we concluded last night or last week with uh, some kind of uh, mention of or an, or an effort on my part to define faith and uh, at that time, uh, I, um, I tried to tell you that, that faith was the opposite of everything meritorious, that faith was the opposite of everything legal, um, uh, and went on to, to mention some other things about transferring trust, you may re recall. I even said, uh, and I, I uh, tried to emphasize, that uh, there's a confusion about the role of faith, and, um, and I told you that little story about asking people uh, what is the grounds of our of our justification what is the thing on which uh, God uh, uh, clears us and pronounces us um, uh, not guilty and 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 I tried to say it is not faith it is the righteousness of Christ uh, faith is the instrument the vehicle by which we lay hold of, um, of that righteousness that is God provided now, so that's where we came from last week. I'd like to go back and, and maybe make another point that will hopefully even sharpen your understanding of uh, what is faith. Uh, again, um, it is not my faith on which I rest. It is the finished and accomplished work of Christ, which is the grounds of my, of my deliverance. If I were to ask you, if I were to ask you this, Please don't answer because I would probably embarrass you. Uh, but what is the opposite of works? If you would say the opposite of works is faith, then you've made the same mistake. The opposite of works is not faith. The opposite of works is the righteousness of God. Um, and that, that righteousness comes through faith. But you see, works is something man does. Righteousness is something that God provides. And so you, you, might, you must try to maintain that distinction. The, the, that which stands in opposition to the, to the endeavored merit of man is not faith. It is the righteousness of God that has provided us uh, in and through the active and passive obedience of Christ that I mentioned last week. That, that's one thing that I wanted to say. 
And then there was one other thing that I, that I, I wanted to mention concerning a definition of faith, and then we'll move on. Um, faith is a misunderstood word, and I, and I told you last week that I don't even use that term anymore. I use the term saving faith because I think it's more, it's, it's more, um, uh, it's clearer than simply using the term faith. Um, faith, ladies and gentlemen, is not simply belief. Now, now that's the point I'm trying to make. Um, I, I think you know the text. There's a couple of, three of them in the New Testament. James 2.19 comes to mind quickly. Um, you believe in God, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. Simply believing something um, is, is not saving faith. That is the first component part of saving faith. Um, that's, that is component number one. But there, is, there, are, there are two other components, ladies and gentlemen, that go into making something saving faith. And, and the, the next word, actually, the, the, I think the Latin word is noetia, um, but it involves, of course, the mind. It does indeed begin there. But there's more. There is, there is an embracing. There is a, there is a um, um, and in fact, it was called a census. Uh, I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, the, 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 uh, the Puritans used to call it closure. A saving closure. I, I love that term, but I, I don't know that it communicates. But saving closure with Christ. That is, uh, somebody used to call it being spread eagle. Falling spread eagle uh, on, on, the, on the work of Christ. Not only do I believe it, but I now embrace it. I close with it. And that um, would be involving one's heart. And then, of course, a third component part has to do with the will. That there is an acting... In fact, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes when you read the New Testament and when it's mentioning faith, you would almost, you, you, you can almost understand it to be equating faith with obedience. But there is a willish, a willish dimension to saving faith. Not only do I, do I believe something cognitively, but uh, then I embrace it and fling myself at it and, and fall spread eagle on it. The only thing that supports me, and then finally, uh, that, that third component part, is there's acting involved, ladies and gentlemen. No one can claim to have saving faith unless this dimension is also included. There are, there are literally billions of people who claim to have this. And, and we've gone over this before. I did this from the pulpit years ago and told you to go out to Poplar and Ridgeway and stop all the cars and ask all the people um, how many of them believed in God. And we talked about how many of the percentages. You remember all that? This, this is rampant. But ladies and gentlemen, it cannot be called saving faith. Um, simply to acknowledge intellectually that these things may have indeed happened historically is not to be identified and understood as saving faith. Saving faith uh, involves my mind, my heart, and my will. All of it is involved when, um, when saving faith is exercised. Now, those were the items that I, I just wanted to add to our discussions of last week.
And we come now to verse 18, which introduces a very critical and a very lengthy new section of Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, there is a very critical um, emphasis or argument that is made here. And gang, it doesn't conclude, this argument, this section really doesn't conclude until chapter 3, verse 20. Paul is going to make a point, and he is going to make it in, in uh, just numerous different ways. But he begins to make that point uh, in verse 18. This is the section, beginning at verse 18, going through chapter 3, verse 20, that shows us or demonstrates the absolute necessity and the absolute need of this gospel that he so glories in. It is the gospel <clears throat> that points man to his only hope, and that hope, of course, is a God-provided righteousness. It is the gospel that says to man that the only hope you have is to be found in this God-provided righteousness. But this section of Scripture answers the question, why was that God-provided righteousness even necessary in the first place? What, what was the cause, what was the, what was the situation that demanded that God provide righteousness? Why did he do it at all? This section will answer that question, among others. Now, um, as we begin this critical section, um, I want to get off on the right foot uh, in terms of treating it. And so I want to give you just some, some introductory observations as we begin. Um, and, and then we'll, we'll look at the <laughs> about the first three words. But, um, gang, um, and, and again, I hope this is just in, uh, preparatory for, um, for the rest of the section, but our culture doesn't like uh, a theology that focuses on shed blood. They call it butcher shop theology. Um, the idea that God punishes sin in Christ is, is repugnant to them. Now, why is that? Why, is the, why are those ideas so, so hated? Well, I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that one of the reasons, at least, is because they do not understand the biblical uh, presentation or the biblical teaching on sin, which this section will help us understand. Gang, the, the universal religion of mankind today is a, is a religion that suggests that man is to go out and produce a good record and then give it to God and then God owes him something. The gospel says that God is the one that produced the good record. He gave it to us and now we owe him something. It is, it is completely dichotomous, that is, man's understanding, the general understanding of how things are supposed to be. It is in this section where you will get um, a, a very lengthy treatment of what it was that gave rise or produced necessity that God provide righteousness. And that's, that's kind of introductory comment number one. Introductory comment number two. 
This section gives us an excellent summary, and, and just summary, uh, of the history of man. There are all sorts of theories uh, and suggestions about human history. Um, evolution is one such suggestion and theory uh, concerning the history of man. I, I want to suggest, even though I think most of you already know that I'm not an evolutionist, but a creationist, but um, one of the reasons that I'm not an evolutionist is because evolution is a theory that is completely inconsistent uh, with what we see taking place all around us. Um, gang, evolution gives no answer. I mean, if evolution were true, you wouldn't expect the kinds of things that are occurring around us. I mean, in this century alone, we have had uh, two world wars. Um, Something that, that my wife and I have developed just a keen, keen interest in is the Holocaust. And while we were in D.C., we went to the, uh, the Holocaust Museum. We went to the one in Jerusalem. One of my desires is to one day visit one of the death camps. But you just cannot fathom what men did to men. Maybe you can. Maybe you can. And I... I I, it's, the, the, uh, the museum in D.C. is better than the one in Jerusalem. And I mean, they've got live footage, actual pictures. It, it, you see, uh, all I'm suggesting is, if, if man is getting better and better and better, then we ought to expect some of those things not to have happened. But since the Holocaust, we've had Rwanda, we've had Bosnia, we've had Kosovo. Um, what I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, is that the state of the world today shouldn't surprise us Christians. In fact, we should almost expect it. And it, it is this section that um, I, I think we can view it as something that simply proves, or actually, I, mean, I stated that backwards. When you look at, the, at the, the, the state of culture today, what uh, seems to be unfolding before our very eyes is something that does nothing but prove the argument of Paul here in this section beginning in verse 18. And, uh, uh, another just introductory argument. I, I want to point to the word all. That is, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness. That is one of those things that Paul continues to make. Paul is not, he's trying to convince not only Gentiles but Jews as well that their only hope is to be found in a God-provided righteousness. This is all in righteousness of men. And of course, Judaism, at least in the, in the era in which Paul writes, uh, thought that they were um, somewhat... Um, uh, they, they weren't included in all this. And what Paul is trying to, is, is trying to make sh sure that they understand is that they too have just as great as need as any Gentile. But that's a theme that I've, I've mentioned before, and I just wanted to point out that he continues it and will repeat it again and again and again. There's another thing that I want you to know about this section. Have you ever asked the question or been asked the question, well, what about the poor, innocent native in Africa who never hears the gospel? What are they going to do? What is God going to do about them? Well, gang, may I say to you, if you will listen closely over the next few months, um you'll get an answer for that question. It's right here. The, um, the, the cannibal in the jungles of Africa, in the, in the deepest heart of the jungle, 
How could God ever punish him for never hearing the gospel? Well, ladies and gentlemen, the answer is, is given you here and given you extensively and, and uh, conclusively and comprehensively. Now, one other thing, and then we'll kind of dive into it. I want you to notice that the, that the verse begins, the section begins with the, the conjunction, for. My, my point is simply, that is a connector. What you have in verse 18 is the continuation of Paul's thrill over being privileged to preach the gospel. Um, because God's wrath is revealed... Paul relishes in this gospel, this gospel that provides a man a way out from underneath that wrath. So all I'm saying is, Paul launches this theme by talking about how thrilled he is over the gospel, and then says, one of the reasons that I'm thrilled about it is because you understand that in it, we get the only hope that man has because the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Paul um, <clears throat> is thrills in the gospel for, for many reasons, but two of the reasons that he's so excited about this gospel is that, number one, he understands that there's a tremendous need for it. That need is going to be described for you in the following verses. He also understands that, the, that in this gospel of his that he's so excited about, it is only through that gospel that that great need can be met. Verse 18 gives us the beginnings of Paul's explanation of that gospel. And he is going, um, as fast as we're going, this will be at times laborious. But he begins to explain that gospel that so excites him. Now, I want you to notice how he begins. Let me ask you this. If you were setting out to explain the gospel, where would you begin? I want you to notice where Paul begins. Um, he doesn't begin by saying, <clears throat> if you come to Christ, all your problems will be solved. You'll get a friend that sticks closer than a brother. If you come to Christ, you will enjoy an experience like no other experience that you've ever had. Um, if, you, if you come to Christ, you can begin to live a life of victory and, and newness. He doesn't start with any of those things, ladies and gentlemen. When Paul gets ready to begin his explanation of this gospel that so excites him, he begins with wrath. That theme of wrath is something that he goes back to ten times or more in this one epistle. It was God's wrath that drives Paul to a fervent desire to declare that gospel because the need is so great and the only hope that man has to address that need is through this gospel. I, I guess I'm saying, in other words, that Paul preached a gospel that was always God-centered. It was never man-centered. He never started with man. He always started with God. And the, and the 
his discussion here begins right there. Now, gang, um, this one point, that is, that he starts with God instead of man, fundamentally differentiates Christianity from all the cults. Gang, um, Paul, in essence, begins with the bad news. And, and, and folks, uh, it'll be chapter 3, verse 20, before he makes this clarion declaration uh, of the good news. He begins with the bad news. Cults can't do that. They can't afford to do that. They're going to always start with something about how they can transform you and the benefits that will accrue to you. Paul's reason for proclaiming this gospel begins with his understanding of the wrath of God. Now, I probably don't need to tell you that there is no part of the Christian message that is so hated or more hated than that. Um, the 20th century offense takes various shapes. Uh, there's all kinds of different ways it's opposed. The atheist opposes it, <laughs> of course, but there's not many of those guys around. Uh, they oppose it, um, indeed because they don't believe there is any God at all, so how can there be any wrath that he has? But um, the, the other suggestions come from people who would say that they believe in God, but can find no way to include and incorporate in their belief of this God the idea of wrath. Some take uh, somewhat of a, a psychological approach, and they say, or they suggest that this this wrath idea uh, is, is some kind of projection of a Victorian father idea. Because as you know, say they, all of, all of religion is based in fear. And um, therefore, this idea is simply the, uh, the result of projecting those, those psychological uh, dysfunctions that we have. There are those who would object in a different way and call the wrath of God idea a, a relic that's left over from the tribal um, God of the Old Testament. But that it is, uh, it's incompatible with Jesus' teaching on love. And um, you cannot reconcile the wrath of God with the love of God. And they go on to try and pit Paul against Jesus, saying that Paul was a was a scribe, was a Pharisee, and really did not know what he's talking about. And then uh, postmodern man, the the one that is beginning to grow up and uh, graduate from our universities, flat out rejects the idea in toto. They are absolutely hostile to the idea. Gang, uh, I know, I'm not here to alarm you, but I'm telling you, uh, I, I think, I don't know whether Bert's still in here, but I don't know whether you have followed some of the, uh, the editorials in the Shelby Sun-Times uh, of late, um, but I'm telling you, somebody wrote in and then some Christians responded, and uh, you should see the vituperation in the words of people who are now answering the Christians, and Bert Tenfield was one of them. It seems to me that, um, that those outside of the pale of the gospel are becoming more and more angry 
at those of us who stand at least where I stand, and I think so many of you share that stance. Then there are those who would say that they indeed believe in God's wrath. They would perhaps even call themselves evangelicals. But in the interest of evangelism, in the interest of attracting people, they would tell us we mustn't mention the idea because, you know, people just aren't going to stand for that. And, you know, if you're going to reach them, you can't, you can't, you can't talk about that. Um, I, I, I don't think I ever see Paul wondering how the Romans would receive what it is that he was saying. And, and one of the tragedies, ladies and gentlemen, by um, eliminating things in the name of evangelism is it undermines, it undervalues, it ignores, it underestimates the power of the Holy Spirit to convert. And, and I think leaves us with the idea that if we're ever going to see anybody converted, it's going to come because of our witticisms, because of our charm, because of our strategy, because of our approach, because of our methodology, because of our marketing. And thus, those are the things that we can rely on instead of relying on the Holy Spirit that gives eyes to see and ears to hear. Now, all of that, ladies and gentlemen, are just are some of the suggestions that I'm uh, making concerning uh, what people do in their attempts to eliminate this whole idea of wrath. Um, <clears throat> now, what, what I want to suggest to you is that all of that is the result of a very deficient view of sin and of God. And I think you're going to get, the, the, uh, in, these next, in this section, a, a very thorough treatment of the biblical uh, view of sin. But ladies and gentlemen, um, I, I want to close tonight by offering you, I, I want to offer you a plea. Um, and, and I hope I can convince at least some of you, maybe some of you don't even need to be convinced, and I hope that's true, but... Um, <clears throat> You must understand that the loss of any doctrine, whatever that doctrine happens to be, does irreparable damage to other doctrines. If you eliminate this one, then you're going to find ramifications in other things that you believe. There is somewhat of an ecological balance uh, to, to scriptural truth that must not be disturbed. Um, I, I was reading in an article, and, and I tried to find it, and I could if I'm given enough time. I just didn't spend enough time. I know. Um, it was in U.S. News and World Report, and they were talking about, uh, I think they were talking about viruses, and I've got a, a gastroenterologist listening to me and a pathologist. I, I had to be careful about what I say, but um, this article suggested that even the E. coli bacteria, the one that has been so publicized, that even, even that, were it to be eliminated completely, that would be harmful. Because there's a, there's a, a, a certain measure of E. coli that is found in everybody's digestive tract that, uh, that allows for better digestion. I, I'll, I'll correct that if that's wrong, uh, and I'm sure I'll be told, and I hope I will be. But, but, but the point is, ladies and gentlemen, there are ecosystems that are kept in balance by the existence of both desirable and undesirable plants and living things. 
And when you destroy one of those things that you might consider harmful, what you end up doing is unbalancing the entire ecosystem to your detriment. Well, gang, in the same way, if we play down things that we consider harsh doctrines within the, the Orthodox Christianity, you will find, I think, to your dismay, that we have gutted things that we consider more pleasant and more glorious and more comfortable. Christian truth is somewhat like a knitted sweater. When you pull at one of the strands, you will end up ruining the whole thing. Now let me offer you some arguments in defense, and then I'll quit for the night. I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that in a lot of ways, hell is a measurement of love. Um, <clears throat> hell is the thing that Jesus experienced for his people. When Jesus Christ hangs from a cross and cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He is at that moment experiencing hell for his people. And if you think what, what happened to his body was awful, it in no way compares to how awful what was happening in his soul. That he and the Father were ripped apart somehow. And that the Father had now turned his back on him. My point is, ladies and gentlemen, that's the extent to which God has gone to save his people. So in, 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 a, in a very significant way, Hell gives you a measurement of the love of God. Secondly, <clears throat> I want to suggest to you that this, this, I don't know what you call it, this assertion that it is not possible to reconcile love with wrath is, is a very short-sighted, a very... Uh, I know no other word to use. Ignorant suggestion. It, it ignores very clear statements and practice on the part of Jesus Christ. He doesn't seem to see a dichotomy between the two. And, and I want to further suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that where there is no wrath, there is no love. Let me try to explain, and I'm, I'm leaning on an argument that was, which I thought was an argument of genius, but, you know, the non-Christian world today is saying, what kind of loving God sends people to hell for eternal suffering? My God is too loving for that. Well, um, <clears throat> what I want to ask those who suggest that is this. Um... What did it cost your God to love you? Um, where, where are his nails that is your God? Where are his nails and his cross? Um, what did he have to endure to, to love you? And the answer has got to be something like, well... Um, I, um, I, I, I don't think all of that was necessary. 
Now, now here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. Don't you think it's ironic on the part of postmodern man in his effort to make God more loving, he ends up making God less loving. Because, ladies and gentlemen, love that does nothing, I want to suggest to you, is not love at all. It's, it's sentimentality. And what you have is sentimentality, not love. Love. Love endures. And I want to say... Any of you who are decent parents know that. Um, folks, what do we do with people that we love when we watch them and see them make unwise decisions? Do we step back and do nothing? You know, I have three daughters, as you know. And because of my great love for them, to see them commit something foolish doesn't make me hate them, but it does make me angry because of my love for them. Um, and what then does love require? You see, my, my point, I think, is the opposite of love is not anger. Those two can exist side by side. The opposite of love is hate which leads to indifference. You know, if I hate somebody, I write them off. I have nothing to do with them. But to suggest that love and wrath cannot be reconciled, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, it is reconciled every day in my view of my own daughters, which prompts me to anger when I see them lie or steal or, or make decisions that, that are so wrong. Gang, you must understand that God's wrath is not some kind of cantankerous outburst. It's not simply some kind of violent paroxysm. God's wrath is his settled opposition to the cancer of sin which ruins and enslaves us all. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, God is both loving and wrathful. And uh, no further reconciliation need be made. I want to leave you with one text. And I, if you've got your Bibles, I'd love you to see this. To me, ladies and gentlemen, the, all of the opposition to this whole idea introduced to us in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. All of 20th century man's opposition can be described and explained in one verse contained in John 3. Let me read it to you. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Why is it, ladies and gentlemen, according to that text, that men have chosen to reject light and love darkness? Is it because they don't understand it? Is it because it seems so harsh? Is it because there's such a, an inability on my part to reconcile these two? No, no, ladies and gentlemen. The answer is simply, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so, 
his great offense with the wrath of God is because that means there is going to be an accountability for his sin. And therefore, I will come up with whatever explanation I can possibly come up with to try and eliminate it. Ladies and gentlemen, when Paul gets ready to announce and proclaim the gospel, he begins by telling us the wrath of God is revealed from heaven and earth against all unrighteousness. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will enable us to um, grasp how deeply this is a part of your whole being in nature. Thank you for the privilege that is mine to try and do my best at explaining it. Might your people find it gloriously refreshing. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sorry I got carried away there. Uh, you need to run on if you're going to the choir. I am. Um, um, our meetings. Good night, everyone.